0: It's great
1: to be here in L.A. where I came to escape the lousy New York City weather. Um, But here we are. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks
0: for doing this, Katie. Appreciate it.
1: Are you kidding? I haven't been in front of an audience this big since I anchored the CBS Evening News. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we got a... Come on. I know it's early, but can you give me some feedback here, people? Uh, We've got a lot of wood to chop, so let's get right to it. Um, Let's start at the beginning. How did you two decide to join forces?
2: Yeah. Yes, so uh, Dick and I obviously worked together for five and a half years or so uh, at Twitter. Dick is the CEO of Twitter and I was the Chief Operating Officer. Uh, We originally came into Twitter uh, when it had just found product market fit and it was time to turn it into a real business and real company. Um, So we took the company from, you know, less than 100 people and one office location in San Francisco and zero in revenue. Uh, I think revenue went from zero to a billion faster than almost any other consumer internet company. And a billion to two billion faster than almost anyone. I think only Amazon, Google, and Facebook got there slightly faster to two billion uh, in revenue than Twitter. Um, Took company public in 2013, ran a public company uh, together. And then uh, we both left at different times and then got back together in 2018. Um, We kind of were like, let's select all except social media and except advertising. So let's go work on... Uh, anything other than that. And we started uh, advising companies together and investing with our own capital and ended up raising our first institutional uh, uh, capital round um, in uh, 2019.
1: And how would you say, Dick, your skills complement each other?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, let's see, Adam
0: is a go-to-market specialist. I mean, he came, he, he's, he, he, as he mentioned, um, we grew revenue when we got there from literally zero uh, to two and a quarter billion a year in, in six years. That was all Adam. Um, Adam built the go-to-market team from, you know, nobody to a couple thousand people. He knows how to integrate the inbound motion and the outbound sales motion with the marketing funnel and how to work the funnel and how to predict what the quarter is going to look like. Um, and I focus on operating leverage, operating uh, efficiency. Uh, organizational structures, um, how to run much more effective management team meetings and stuff like that. So, um, and also, I, go, I guess on the personality front, Adam is patient. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're uh, not. <laughs> yeah. there
0: was a little bit of a good cop, bad cop uh, as well going on. So we complement each other both in skill sets and personality.
1: So at what stage in the business cycle do you all uh, invest in? Do they have an idea and a business plan, but are pre-revenue... Um, Are they further along? What stage are you really looking at companies?
0: Yeah, we like to get involved when a company has found product market fit, um, and has some revenue and now needs to migrate from building a product to building a business. I remember um, Brian Chesky was on stage at, a, at another conference in 2019 and one of the big public market investors in the audience said, hey Brian, I was here in 2009 when you got up on stage as a, you know, a School of Design graduate and told us all about your new company Airbed and Breakfast yeah. and here you are 10 years later. And you've got a $30 billion company and thousands of people around the world. What's the hardest thing you had to do in the last 10 years? And right away, Chesky said, oh, going from building a product to building a business. Everything you, that got you, made you successful building a product, you now need to unlearn and change the way you think about decision making, scaling communication, architecture. Uh, again, all the things we had just talked about. Go-to-market strategy,
2: operating efficiency, et cetera. So that's where we focus.
1: And and you have a different approach, Adam. How would you describe it?
2: You know, I basically we come in um, as ex operators and ex at scale operators. The idea we had originally was, you know, there's a lot of puffy Patagonia vest folks in Uh-oh. the industry, and oh boy. <laughs> right away with the attacks. On the <laughs> <laughs> and there haven't been a ton of at scale operators who have come uh, come to market. So. Essentially, when we started looking at uh, venture capital or VC, we were like, you know, there's a lot of focus on the, on the C part, which is capital, but what a VC meant more about venture coaching than it is venture capital? And so that's kind of the approach that we've taken.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there was a guy, when we were at Twitter, there was a, a man there, Bill Campbell, who was famously on the board of Apple and Steve Jobs' close friend and then coached Larry, Sergey, and Eric at, at Google. And the benchmark folks had brought him into Twitter. And he helped us think about, again, he helped us think about... The right way to manage at scale, the right way to lead at scale. You know, only make the decisions that only the CEO can make. Don't tell people what to do. Let them have ownership of decisions. That's authority and accountability. All this stuff that, you know, we took from him and help other CEOs with now.
1: Yeah, but with all due respect, you're not the first VC fund to uh, promote your operating expertise and its success at scaling companies as a defining attribute. Um, don't all top venture capital funds have the same capabilities and wealth of experience?
0: Yeah, we think we have a different model. I mean, there are, of course, other operators like, I mean, obviously, famously, uh, Ben and Mark, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. They're a big firm now. They're, you know, hundreds of people. Um, They have hundreds of companies spread across uh, billions of dollars and multiple multi-billion dollar funds. Adam and I are um, focused much more on only 18 or so companies per fund. We spend a detailed amounts of time with our, with our companies. and We were with a company yesterday for four hours. We did an all-hands meeting where we talked to the company about what they were going to go through as they scaled and what they, would, what they would all experience as they scaled. We talked to the leadership team, again, about their go-to-market strategy and how to improve their weekly metrics reporting on their go-to-market strategy. We talked to the CEO about culture and how to think about culture as you scale globally. Right? There are a lot of people who have operated, but we operated... 30 offices around the world, you know, 4,500 people when we left. We can answer questions like, hey, I've got engineering offices in Europe and Asia and the U.S. How do I think about, you know, how, to, how I'm doing code migrations and everything across multiple global engineering offices? How do I open a new office in Europe and make sure the culture there is the same as it is in New York? New York? On and on and on, all these things we did that... You know, some people have gotten to a certain point of, of scale. We've we've taken it all the way to a $35 billion company.
1: How tricky is, is coaching about culture these days with such different attitudes, but from Gen Z employees versus older employees? I think everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. Um, has that created some, some big challenges?
2: It's definitely created challenges, although a lot of what we all experienced um, over the last, like, 10 to 15 years of building companies in the tech space been kind of built on this idea of everything had been up and to the right. And so I think actually the, the recent change in the, in the market and the environment now, um, has actually led to a set of potentially good changes. Um, kind of a focus back again on uh, company performance as job one.
0: You know, we have, I mean, we dealt with all this stuff at, at Twitter, you know, uh, I remember there was famously at Twitter, all the Twitter uh, folks will remember this, uh, there was an email sent to everyone inside Twitter. You could send an email to this email address called Twitter Internal, and it went to everyone in the company. So this email went to thousands of people. And it said, hey, I saw we got rid of the free hint water in the break rooms. You know, this is bullshit. You know, I remember at Microsoft, when they got rid of the towels in in the gym, that was the end of Microsoft. You know, and it was this nine paragraph email, and I remember Adam's assistant, uh, uh, Kristen, responded to the email first and said, with the address for the Walgreens across the street, (laughs) and enjoy your journey. Uh, so So, you know, you this stuff has been bubbling up and without having to go through a downturn with no recession since really 2008, you have a bunch of employees who've never seen them rough times. And so there was this growing sense of entitlement. We we certainly had to deal with that during our time at Twitter.
1: And then you also have to handle this new, new normal of remote, you know, work and all that. And, you know, you mentioned what it, how, what do you think about the economy? What are your feelings about what's ahead? Because well, we're, um, there's all sorts of conflicting messaging and signs right now.
2: Certainly on the remote side. I mean, we literally just spent, uh, as Dick said, a couple hours at a at a new portfolio company here in LA, um, and they are fully back in the office, and it's pretty amazing in terms of um, the team kind of being in gel in with each other. We sat and hung out actually with the sales team for a little bit. And it's just like the energy of the team doing calls <laughs> and the like. So I think that's uh, that part is definitely coming back. The founder um, basically kind of said, you know, I'll put this company up against any uh, remote work and, you know, we'll run circles around it just because of everybody being back together again. So I actually think the pendulum is swinging back the other yep. way. Agreed.
1: What about the economy, Dick? How are you feeling about I mean, it these days?
2: You
0: know, we looked at 197 <clears throat> companies last year and made two investments. I think that um, it's the, maybe the worst thing about uh, the economy is that it's, it's so uncertain what's going to happen. Will we, I mean, we've been talking about will we go into a recession or not for over a year now. Um, it's pretty unclear. What's going to happen to inflation? I think people thought here it's coming down, everything's going to be fine. And then we had a recent inflation report that was much higher than anyone thought it was going to be. So it looks like the Fed is going to tighten maybe more aggressively than, than anyone anticipated. So it's for sure a rough seas ahead. Oh, we're advising all of our CEOs cut operating expenses much more than you think. You know they go through these, like, sort of, it's like, um, They go through these phases of denial. The first reaction is, well, we're going to grow our way out of it you know and then the second reaction is okay i'll cut you know okay i'll cut this 8% but that's cutting to the bone you know and then and sort of go through these and they, and then you say if you do that you're going to have to make cuts again no i won't and then four months later they're making cuts again you even see this happening in public companies so we try to coach all of our ceos It's probably going to be, let's anticipate, you know, as a CEO, you have to create and set the conditions for success. So anticipate the worst possible case scenario and then plan for that. And if things go better than that, great, we can start growing again and investing into growth.
1: And in fact, you're putting tremendous emphasis on the CEO, how the CEO is selected and really trying to take some of the guesswork out of that. Tell us sort of how you're doing that, Adam.
2: Yeah, so I'll set it up with, um, when we first started getting involved uh, with um, investing, you know, it dawned on us there's so much data uh, in the VC space around how you go through uh, selection and picking, and then ultimately operating companies, right? We all use incredible amounts of data to do that. The crazy thing is there's not a ton of data around um, CEO evaluation. It's sort of, we found it odd. Um, and when we started asking great VCs about how they evaluated CEOs, it sort of sounded a little bit like the Moneyball scene <laughs> where you have the scouts who were kind of saying, well, I kind of feel this way. So there's a data gap. Um, and so we started looking around to see if we could figure out a way to uh, solve the data gap. We found, um, incredibly, a, a former NHL player, played 14 years in the NHL, who then left and got his PhD in cognitive psychology. If I had a nickel for every NHL player who went and got their PhD in cognitive psychology. So true N of one. um, And uh, he basically had built this system that a bunch of sports teams, NHL teams, MLB teams, soccer teams, NFL teams, are using to evaluate um, draft talent. And they, it's a kind of like a moder, modern Wonderlick style test. And it's a multiple choice uh, set of questions that get to the root of behavior. And so we saw this, we got super excited about it, and we've been working to uh, migrate this from just a sports application to actually using it in business with the big idea of like, could we create almost like the human genome project, but instead of using it with DNA, we're actually using business decisions and so we're starting with our CEOs and actually have gone out uh, to the market with a bunch of other uh, execs to start to gather a bunch of corpus of data to see if we can understand better um, what drives success for CEOs.
1: So it's too early really to determine if it's, if it's effective at this juncture?
0: We've actually run a bunch of our CEOs through it and it has confirmed um, in almost every case what we already knew to be true about them. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons we embarked on this journey is... Um, when we went back and looked at our earliest investments, and we're only you know, four years old, we started investing in, as a firm in 2019, our misses were, oh man, the unit economics looked great, the PL statement looked great, we could see how the gross margins would improve as they scaled and customer service costs were reduced. And what we missed was, oh, the CEO is low EQ and thinks he or she knows all the answers. And You know, what we do well is mitigate execution risk and price execution risk as companies start to scale. And if if we tell the CEO, hey, you're about to fly the plane into the side of the mountain, and they say, no, I'm not, or they defend the status quo, you know, there's not a lot for us to be able to do. So we realized, oh, the the misses we've had are not really understanding whether this is a person that can go to the distance or not and have the right attitude you know when the going gets tough are they going to fold are they going to be resilient so this has been enormously helpful in that regard so
1: can you give us more of an idea of what these data sets determine and kind of some of the things that you're looking for it's slightly amorphous
2: yeah sure uh it's like a 78 question multiple it's like either or and so they'll throw a question at you and you have to decide one or the one or the other um you know a simple one um you know, here's a problem. Do you solve it by going and reading a bunch of information about it, or do you rely on past behavior? You know, so trying to get to the uh, root cause of a, of, um, uh, of of your behavior of your right. decision making, and so as a result, it spits out essentially a report that shows weights and biases of any individual CEO. There's no, it's a test, yes, but there's not like a right or wrong set of answers. It spits out essentially a uh, formula around the type of personality and the type of decisions that the CEO would make, with the idea being, um, what ultimately could we do right. uh, to help surround the CEO with success? You know, like so. It
1: also shows the weaknesses and yeah, how absolutely. coaching that right. particular individual, what areas. That person needs coaching in. And that report
2: goes back to the CEO as well. So the the CEO is actually able to go through the report and actually have a conversation uh, with Jay, actually, the NHL. Uh, athlete uh, to start to, to work through it. And what,
1: how important, one, go ahead, you go No, ahead.
2: one of the interesting, fascinating things about it for
0: us is, you know, there are, uh, uh, Adam and I are, are are creative and intuitive leaders. We, we lead mostly by intuition and, and, and creativity, as opposed to digging through a bunch of analytics before, before making a decision. You know, gathering feedback and listening to the team and then going with our gut. That's the way we tend to lead. Interestingly, one of the things we learned about ourselves from these tests is we invest mostly in founder CEOs who are more analytical and a complement to the way we think about things and less in people who are like ourselves so it's been both uh, hugely reflective and helpful for us in that regard and again helping us understand this CEO is more of an you know our, one of the one of the titles of his reports is army of one this is the person who's like I got the ball put me in coach I can do this you're like okay we need to make sure this person understands they're going to be the weaknesses they have. They need to be surrounded with the right people, and nobody has to have all the answers and push decisions down the stack. Don't do everything yourself.
1: How yeah. important is prior business success in your calculation?
2: Uh, you know, it's actually some of our best performers. Um, some of them have been multi-time entrepreneurs, and some of them this is their first time. So I think there's no one way to be successful. Um, just to give you an example, um, one of our best. Uh, performing companies out of Fund One is a company called Spot On, which is a point of sale uh, business, uh, sort of competes with Toast, um, is a massive business, uh, uh, multi-billion dollar uh, uh, business that we did uh, with uh, uh, Dragoneer and Andreessen Horowitz, ultimately. Um, The founders are two twin brothers that actually started a payments company originally and sold it to a payments aggregator, Tesis, and then took the capital that they made or the return that they made and actually started the new company with this. Um, So here's a great example of a company that's absolutely crushing it and actually is, you know, uh, really relevant um, founders that have done this before.
0: And then we have a bunch of companies where, you know, they're 19 and 20 year old CEOs, founder CEOs. The beauty of running this behavioral test is, okay, this is their first time doing anything. So, you know, there is no history to go look at and, and, and back channel to, to do. And running this behavioral test with them and going through the results with them helps us understand how to think about coaching in them and how to complement the
2: team around them. It's amazing. They don't know, you know, the limits as a result. And yeah. So- yeah.
1: Um, so you talk about a success. What's been your biggest failure? <laughs>
2: uh, the, again, there...
0: <laughs> he they, laughs nervously. They, no, I, no, it's, it's the, literally when we went through our early um, re, early sort of results on Fund One, it was, wow, we missed. Look, we, I just described to you what we do from our, from our experience. What didn't we do at Twitter? We didn't interview people to see if they would be good CEOs. We, you know, I was the CEO. Um, so one of the things we missed was, oh, this founder is super low EQ and doesn't, you know, uh, you know, tells people on the team they're idiots and, you know, and, and, and pushes, you know, is constantly pointing fingers. And again, when you tell them there's a problem, he either denies there is a problem or defends the status quo and tells you why you know, everything's going to be fine. Those are not people we're able to uh, help, and tend to, they tend to be particularly poor performers and bad leaders and certainly can't scale, so those have been our biggest misses, yeah, all, and there are
2: a few of them. All of our misses have been around the CEO, yeah. and that's yeah. why the CEO evaluation is so important. Um, Dick mentioned the, um, the miss. I'll give you the the opposite miss, which is, we loved. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, We great loved point. the CEO, but we hated <laughs> the TAM. Yeah. and so we had real concerns about it. Or we hated some some areas around unit economics and the business. We ended up passing. The company ended up absolutely crushing it, and we realized again, you know, we should have bet on the CEO. Yep. And actually, a great CEO can even uh, go ab- above and beyond any concerns of a TAM or, or unit economics. And actually, by the way, we went back and actually corrected it and invested it in the next
1: round. So I guess the question is, after you've done this massive evaluation and you've bet on a horse and that CEO doesn't deliver, doesn't you know, reach expectations in a certain amount of time, have you made it even more difficult for yourselves to remove that individual from the position?
0: No. I think one of the things we learned from Campbell um, is we're super forthright with our, with, with our CEOs. Um, I remember you know and there have been a couple of these I was in a meeting with the CEO and they had just come out of a board meeting and the board had not particularly been clear with the CEO that they were doing um, a horrible job and were in big trouble and you know I sat down with the CEO and, and told him Here's what you know. Here's all, here are all the things you're doing wrong. You've missed metrics, you know, three quarters in a row. You're constantly pointing fingers at your team. You're the CEO of the company. You're in a board meeting. You can't be pointing fingers at everybody when you miss three quarters in a row. And, you know, he, he told me, you know, why I was wrong and, and, and so on and so forth. And I said, you know, I'm not asking you if this is true. I'm informing you. Like, I'm telling you before the board is telling you that you're in big trouble. Um, so uh, we don't have any problem with that. And I think we're. Maybe more um, more aggressive and forthright with our with our uh, poor performers than maybe others would be
2: yeah, one of our operating models since we we are running a pretty concentrated uh, fund, we only do eighteen um, deals. We have a ton of time per fund we have a ton of time uh, to dedicate to the CEO but the other part of it is we al- also usually don't join boards, um, and that actually is intentional so that we can sit you know basically. Uh, not directly across from CEO in every moment, but also kind of be the first voice, the first call when there's good news, but more importantly, the first call when there's bad news. So, that,
0: was a, that was another Campbellism. When I became CEO of Twitter, I asked Campbell to take the, you know, available independent board seat on the Twitter board. And right away, it was like literally the day, I think the day or the day after I became CEO. And I said, hey, Bill, you got to take the independent, you know, seat. You know everything that's going on in the company. And Campbell said, I don't want to be on the board because I want to know what's going on at Twitter. And I kind of laughed and said, like, what? I just became CEO. What makes you think I'm not going to tell the board what's going on in the company? And he goes, ah, oh, you know, he's kind of this gruff. He's like, ah, oh, you'll see. And sure enough, I had to dismiss someone from a role three weeks later who had, who had been convinced by one of the board members to move their family across country and join Twitter and so-and-so. And I called Campbell and I said, hey, I got to, like, dismiss this person. How am I going to talk to the board about this when, they, when they're the ones that convinced him to move across the country? And Campbell's only response was, I told you you wouldn't call me if I was on the board. And, uh, you know, he was, we, get those, we get those calls. And I think all of our CEOs would tell you that having a sounding board of people who have been there before and been in the seat that I'm in that are not on the board, and I can ask them how to talk to the board about something, again, whether it's good news or bad news, is enormously helpful.
1: Thanks for the segue. What the hell is going on at Twitter?
0: <laughs> yes, well, Dick, what is happening
2: at Twitter? <laughs> I don't want to be on record.
0: <laughs> I think uh, Twitter is a very, very challenging company to run, and more people are learning that every day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all. The tea you're going to spill.
0: <laughs> well, if you ask me what my advice for Elon is, it would be, let's get that cyber truck out. <laughs>
1: You know, he wants to create an unwoke AI. This is his latest thing. Uh, What was your reaction when you read that?
0: I mean, it's uh, my reaction to that is more of my reaction to all of the AI stuff that's going on right now, which is it's all coming at us so quickly, and I think much. I mean, this is I'm, I'm sort of stating the obvious. Much more rapidly than maybe anyone, except the people on the very inside, had anticipated. That, having run a social media company and seeing firsthand the unintended consequences of you know we used to say at Twitter we used to say like hey we 're the free speech wing of the free speech party, and while well, you quickly realize what happens if you have and I think Ilana's has realized what happens if, if you just say we 're just going to have unmitigated free speech well you end up with these with uh, significant trolls and abuse, and you start to realize okay we can 't just have unmitigated free speech so on the AI front, and we can, we, we've been talking about this a lot internally, and should talk a little bit about it here, uh, you know, the thing we worry about are what are all the unintended consequences and second-order effects of it, and the thing we, the thing we try to think about from an opportunity standpoint is where are the opportunities to invest here? Yeah, I mean, the, we the
2: opportunity is pretty compelling and mind-blowing. It's hard not to be hyperbolic about it, it's actually great that we're the first speaker because we can set the <laughs> stage at least for the, the the word on AI, at least for, for upfront. upfront. Um, it, it really is amazing. We actually have firsthand knowledge of it because one of our companies, um, TripActions now called Navon, um, has been working on this for about eight months and actually has deployed uh, conversational AI, large language modeling um, based on uh, kind of the chat GPT, uh, out to end consumers. And so we actually have real... First-hand knowledge of how uh, customers are actually interacting, um, and it's it's really mind-blowing. Just to give you a sense, um, they are a SaaS business. They're a B two B travel business. Um, customer support, live customer support. You're traveling um, is is job number one for them, and um, it is a big uh, headcount and cost and just essentially overhead. They have now rolled uh, a chat uh, module into the app. Um, So if you're live traveling with TripActions, chances are you're talking to a bot first. And uh, just off of only a couple months of training, it's as good as, if not better, than the humans behind the scenes. Um, And it's just been stunning to watch. And in fact, as we started thinking about it, for SaaS businesses, AI, all the stuff in support is probably a first mover for AI. Um, Just to give you a sense, last year in terms of revenue for SaaS, there was 200 billion dollars of revenue generated and about 10 to 11 percent of that revenue comes in support costs and so there's like 20 billion of essentially profit that will go back to the to uh any of these businesses if they actually implement this right right by 29 it's supposed to be 800 billion so 80 billion dollars of potential profit that can swing uh, ultimately, so that's why people are getting excited about it. It's just a super thin slice, just in customer support. Yeah, so, I think, we're but, almost
1: but, out of time, yeah. Dick. So, I just want to ask you it's hard not to be hyperbolic about the potential harms yeah. and dangers of AI. What are you most worried about?
0: It's the, you know, it's again based on my experience at Twitter and, and understanding the social media landscape. There are all these um, positives that came from it, and then, of course, there are all these you know, uh, abuse and um, and depression among teenagers from seeing everybody else living their best lives on Instagram and dealing with all that. And, you know, just imagine as bad as it is for teenagers now in, in junior high and high school that are uh, dealing with these images they see of their uh, uh, friends or other people in their class, what's going to happen when you can ask the AI, like, hey, you know, Adam beat me up in school. Go make his life miserable. You know, go figure out what you can find out about him online and, and, and you know ruin his weekend there's gonna be of course there's gonna be a bunch of that and it's bad and we have to get out ahead of it the challenge is we're not getting out ahead of it and the ethicists who think about this tend to be in academia and not in the organizations themselves so it's a real problem
2: as an optimist though um, the difference this time is at least in social um, when the products were designed thinking about abuse, thinking about uh, malicious behavior wasn't actually core in any of the design pieces. And So the difference here is, at least with AI, the AI designers are aware and are thinking through, uh, methodically, all the different vectors of of abuse. Um, They're also thinking about the other end too, which is some of the changes that you put in place in terms of trying to curb behavior or put governors in place also have mal-effects as well. And so, it's really kind of... it's a balance. It's a balance. Like
1: everything. Yeah. Well... Um,
0: We would be remiss if we didn't um, ask you as VCs who like to talk to founders, you have to tell us about what you're up to.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. About five years ago, my husband and I started a new media company called Katie Couric Media, not very original, but we decided to leverage my name, whatever that's worth, and... Basically, we work with mission-driven companies to do storytelling and create communities. And we've got millions of people in our community. We have a newsletter that has more than a million subscribers, high engagement rate, high open rate, podcasts, videos. And we're not only you know, reaching our community, but we're also amplifying the storytelling and targeting new communities. So you know, at a time when media companies are really struggling, And the media landscape has changed so dramatically. They're contracting and we're growing. So it's really exciting. So thanks for asking me that. Anyway, this was fun. Dick, Adam, thanks so much. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for kicking this off. Thanks, everybody.